welcome to the Animal Control Report with your hosts. Oh wait, Ashley's not here. Um, <laughs> so it's just me, Daniel Ettinger, and we wish Ashley the best. Though nothing is wrong with her, just she's busy doing real life stuff. So appreciate that work-life balance. We uh, have a good show planned for us today. If you like livestock, this will be a show for you, and I'm excited for that. But before we jump in, please check out our website, keepithumane.com. Use discount code ACREPORT for 10% off of your order. So if you grab something from the store, don't forget to use that discount code ACREPORT. Also check out our socials, Keep It Humane. I think we're on Facebook. I know we're on Facebook, Instagram, all those fun places. So check that out. Don't forget to like, share, and rate the podcast. So we'll just jump in with our guests just to make this show keep it moving. Um, I'm going to introduce Robin Stewart. She is the County Extension Coordinator for Lincoln County, Georgia, and uh, the University of Georgia. So if you're a Bulldogs fan, welcome, Robin, to the show. Perfect. Thank you, Daniel. I appreciate it. Thanks for the opportunity to be here. So what if who's your biggest rival? Who's the Bulldogs' biggest rival? Oh, I mean, I feel like I have to say Alabama, but they're all rivals for different reasons, mm. right? Like Florida's a big one just because we don't like them. <laughs> that we feel particularly threatened by them. So they I think one in a while. Yeah. What level of rivalry are we talking about? Is it the actual who could beat us or is mm. it like the historical way? We There's feel a lot of pride, <laughs> a lot of pride in Georgia, especially with the Bulldogs. There is. Well, and I joke with people because I am an, a Georgia alumni who now works for them, and I'm actually getting my doctorate there right now. Wow. So I'm like, I am very strongly opinionated on the UGA side. <laughs> so, okay. How do, is the, how do I pronounce the bulldog himself? What is his name? Harry Dog. <laughs> What's Harry, the, the English bulldog, his name is Harry Dog? No, that's the, uh, our, our mascot is Harry Dog. Well, don't they have a real live bulldog that comes yeah, to games? Yeah, real. He's just Oga. Okay. Okay. Sorry, so that, I, I thought you were talking about Harry Dog, and I was well, like, our mascot's just Harry Dog. Oh, that's, that's funny. So Oga <laughs> is his name. Uga. So he's yeah. that's short for. Well, that's basically the the um, acronym, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and then depending on which one you're talking about, you add all the Roman numerals to him. So <laughs> it looks like I was going to say it looks like he's been around since 1956 now unless there's been some changes in the veterinary world they've probably had how many uh i could not tell you to be honest because i also don't know how long their term is sure yeah, because they're they actually mm-hmm. it's actually a family they're owned by a family who breeds them and okay. then like I, I don't know if it's a contract or exactly how that works with the university but they are like privately owned and then used as the oga Mascot. Makes sense. Yeah. So before we jump in, I want to talk a little bit. So we had an episode air. It's called the well, Henry Berg, the founder of animal law enforcement. Now, if you know anything about Henry Berg, he started the ASPCA and our guest for that episode was Ernest Freeberg. And he wrote a book called A Traitor to His Species. And it talks about how Henry Berg got involved in the animal welfare movement. And really, I mean, though there were cats and dogs obviously being abused at that time, it really started because of how livestock was treated. And I thought it was really interesting just reading the few first few paragraphs of this book. 
and I still have a little more to go. And it just really talks about how, how Henry Berg, like, was just appalled by the treatment. And I'm talking like some horrific stuff, like horses found in ditches, still alive, but barely how they would sell off horses that were like towards the end of their life at auctions for like five bucks. But back then in the 1800s, I'm sure that was a pretty decent amount of money, but still it was five bucks. And so like what would happen is these people that were poor would then try to get the rest of the life out of the horses by just constantly, you know, working and working and working them. And if we know anything about our ordinances or state statutes, uh, part of like the history or just the general like wording is overdrive overwork. We see that pretty much nationwide. And that comes from that first law of horses. And so I just find it interesting of like how they were really the focus was you have a job and your job is to work, whether it's to pull trolleys, whether it's to plow, whether it's to, you know, do carriage rides, whatever it may be, uh, these animals. And then that's just the horse side of it and not to get into the the cattle and things like that. Uh, so I'm just curious, you know, just having you on and, and the, the work that you do with livestock, how, I guess, your perspective of like, and I didn't get like into the gory details, how it's treated now versus maybe how it was almost well, 150 years ago. Sure. Well, I think that part of it is just understanding the history of animal agriculture, right? Because when we look at the way we domesticated species, it all happened in a specific order. And a lot of that order was related to you know, things like, what did these animals eat? Like, did we need to feed them? What services did they provide us? And so, um, you know, like, for example, horses are one of the last species that we really domesticated. Um, and it's because they really are useful for most people at the time for work was primarily it, right? We may have used them for food and some societies still do. Um, but for the most part, they were domesticated later on. But for most of these people, and even today, horses are a very different conversation because they don't serve as much of that food animal purpose as some of those other species do, right? People would have chickens or cattle or sheep or goats or pigs, and they would primarily be a food source, a milk source, and some of those things would be like fiber and feathers and things like that. And so horses... We, we didn't have quite as much benefit for, and they're very large and they tend to be more expensive to keep. So they were an animal that did get domesticated for specific purposes, as you said, that work primarily purpose, um, but they were later down on that domestication route in terms of when it happened. And I think that that, you know, also remembering that back then, if you had a horse, you were considered to be a relatively wealthy person right? Because Definitely. keeping them was difficult, right? And, and they do require care and attention. And, and I'm not saying that other species don't, um, but the trade-off of value was different. So I certainly think that you, you saw that situation where we had them domesticated for work purposes, for the carriage and the field work and so on and so forth. But we also didn't have the standards of care that we do now. Um, and I think you can say that for all livestock species. And I think a lot of that is just related to societal developments, right? We don't use livestock the same way that we used to. 
Um, most people aren't involved in agriculture in the same way that they were historically. And I think that there's just been a lot of societal change, which has led to differences in how we approach the care and husbandry of these species. And so I, I, don't, I don't know that I can say that I think that we have all of those problems solved. And I think there's arguments on either, either end of that spectrum, right? I think that there are still things that we definitely can do better jobs of. But I also think a lot of the things that we do from a husbandry standpoint at this time in society are things that are fairly well researched and proven um, and that are ultimately, again, kind of trying to get to this end goal of feeding the world. And that's a whole nother ballpark. Yeah, that's a whole nother episode (laughs) or two even. (laughs) When you think about, okay, so a couple things, and I know we jumped right in, which I, I, I like, and I think it's amazing to see kind of the transition to how animals are used and, and how it continues to evolve, whether it's the way we house chickens, the way that, you know, we slaughter our cattle. You know, we talk about, I often talk about um, Temple Grandin on this show. I just think she's done some amazing work for some of our, our livestock creatures and, yes. and how that, you know, how that's made their lives more or added a little more quality to their lives. Right. And so, I want to back up though a little bit because I, I just I think it's important for our listeners. What so as an in the extension program, like what does that look like? What are you doing on a day to day? How does that impact the care and well being of animals? Sure. Um, so I'll start off by explaining what extension is because not everybody knows. I think it's very generational. Um, I've noticed the older generations tend to recognize what a county agent is. Whereas like my parents, myself, my generation has no clue. Um, So (laughs) basically what happened is, you know, agriculture has always been essential part of society, especially settled societies, right? You have to be able to feed your population. And so that's really where all of this began. And back in, you know, the 1900s, 1800s, as we're talking, when you've got these, um, these civilizations that are dependent on agriculture, that are dependent on crops and food animals, they are looking for the best ways of growing, right? They're looking for the ways of supporting their communities. And so back in 1914, the United States government um, created what's called the Smith-Lever Act, and it established the Cooperative Extension Service. And that is unique to the U.S. that I know of. I think there's probably kind of similar things in other countries, but The CES is really a United States thing. Um, And essentially what it was designed for is to bring the scientific research and information that is being done at the university level to the public and to the farmers. So over time, it's evolved. Originally, it was strictly agriculture. So it was looking at crops and disease and maximizing your output and, you know, coming up with these animal husbandry type things. And then over time, we also established 4-H, which is our youth development, which most people are familiar with. And then more recently, we actually have established a family and consumer sciences area that is focused on things like financial health and literacy, physical health and well-being, so more about the science of healthy living. And so this modern cooperative extension has all three of those under the extension umbrella. 
And there is cooperative extension offered through every land grant in the country. So whatever state you live in, your land grant university is responsible for providing cooperative extension services to the public. Now, it does look different depending on where you live. So here in Georgia, we are one of the um, largest states in terms of number of counties. I think we're only like third um, on the, the number of counties in our state. And in Georgia, we have a county agent in every single county. So I serve as a manager of a county-based office, and I manage two staff members who do our 4-H programming and, manage, and do our administrative work for our office. And then I manage all of the agriculture and natural resources programming. So I do reactive things. So people are able to call our office or email me or ask questions. Um, so I handle those things. And I, I kind of joke if it's alive and you want it dead or dead and you want it alive, you can call me and I can help because um, it's everything from how do I get my grass to grow to, you know, I've got this insect in my house. How do I get rid of it? So all so kinds I sent of you a, a photo of like an insect. I don't know what it is. Do you know, like if you don't know what it is, you know, somebody that does. I do. Exactly. That's so so cool. it, it's yeah. that stuff. And then my background is a livestock. So I, I do kind of try to push the livestock stuff because it's my favorite stuff to talk about. Um, but then we do proactive things. So I run a lot of programmatic things. So I run an annual equine series that's usually four to six weeks long in the spring. I do an annual chicken series. Um, I do small ruminants, so sheep and goat. I do cattle. Um, I do forage programs, so teaching you how to be a better grass grower to manage all of those livestock. Um, so really, we, we kind of wear a lot of hats and we do a bunch of things, but co cooperative extension on the whole, our whole goal is to bring you information that is scientifically proven. And that's really the biggest piece to it is making sure it's not just my opinion. It's not my personal experience. It is It is information that we can have data behind and really be confident in what we're telling you. And so that's the cool thing. Um, and it's, I think it's great. I think it's a great way to get information that's scientifically research proven and it's from any university. So, you know, Georgia doesn't have the best equine research in the world. So I'll pull resources from other states and other extension services into my state. So it's talk really, yeah. Talk to yeah. us a little bit about how like your, I guess your expertise, like can you and is your program there in a way to help if an animal control officer or an investigator has a question about livestock? Sure. So this is something that uh, I started working in this area about four years ago, um, actually with Dr. Carissa Wickens, who's down at the University of Florida. She has a program called LECAL. It is Livestock Education for Agricultural Law Enforcement. Um, that was established back in... I want to say 2015, but I could be a little off. Don't hold me to that. Okay. Um, her program, so Florida's unique in that it's got an ag crimes unit. Mm -hmm. So they have law enforcement officers that um, all they do is ag crimes. So all they do are the welfare calls and things like that. So she developed this certification program wherein these officers come in and they learn about husbandry and they learn about handling and they learn about basically how to be knowledgeable enough that if they get called into litigation, that they can mm -hmm. testify and be knowledgeable about it. 
So we took that concept in that program and built kind of a similar thing up here. Ours is a little bit less focused on the litigation side and a little bit more on the husbandry, basic care and handling, you know, what are acceptable practices in the livestock industry and what are things that are not and what, you know, what are you going to look for in those cases? Um, So we've been running that every year for about three years now. Um, Usually we try to target the law enforcement groups, but actually last year we wound up with a lot of Department of Agriculture people. And I think we've discussed this year opening it to Humane Society as well. So trying to get this education to the folks that are doing some of this animal rescue type work and trying to really just make sure that they're equipped and they know what resources are available to them. Where can they go to find out more information on it? Is there a good website we can direct them to? There's not a great website, but they're more than welcome to reach out to me directly. Okay. And we can put your contact, your email in the show notes. So that way they can just shoot you an email and get in touch with you. I think it's pretty amazing, like having that type of stuff. And when we talk about livestock in general, in my opinion, this is just my opinion. I think that livestock owners are a little different than just your normal dog and cat owners in some ways. And I don't mean that like, like stark difference. I will say that there's a different purpose for their animals and right. So if that animal is producing their livelihood, uh, they may be, they may react differently. And so one thing that, you know, I, I think is important for our animal control officers to know, especially if they're investigating those types of crimes is to really make sure they're not just saying that a dairy cow is skinny when it's not right. Like understanding that, you know, the, the certain, uh, I was going to say aerodynamics. <laughs> That's not the word because cows, I mean, they can be fast, but the a- anatomic, the anatomical breakdown or however you would say it, right. Like understanding that piece of it is extremely important so that you offer that training is amazing. Yeah. So we call that body condition scoring. There is a system for every species and Mm -hmm. we phrase it as understanding if an animal weighs what it should, right? Because if I tell you I have a thousand pound horse, that doesn't tell you very much about the horse. But if you're familiar with body scoring and I say, okay, I have a body condition score of a five, which is ideal. It tells you that my horse weighs what he should. Um, so we, we have systems like that and those are standardized. So that's a system that can go into a court of law and be a, a point of, you know, data that is scientifically and supported by the livestock community. So Most, I, I definitely yeah. understand that. Um, and, and, and I do want to go back. You mentioned kind of the difference in maybe purpose and emotional tie with livestock. And I think that's one of the biggest maybe disconnects or barriers because, My argument would be that I think most people that have livestock, regardless of how large they are, do care about their animals, right? And I think that you kind of see livestock folks get villainized sometimes of the like, how could you raise a calf and feed it out and then send it to be processed, right? But I think I also would remember that they do serve a purpose and it's different from dogs and cats because dogs and cats are companions, right? Like they are part of our family. We have a strong emotional tie. And that's an argument we get actually on the horse side is whether a horse is defined as a companion animal or a livestock animal depends on what state you live in. And they get different legality around how they're managed and what's appropriate based on that definition. And it's all coming down to the emotional tie, the purpose of the animal, 
you know, in what we think is appropriate. So I, I think that's a conversation that I don't know that there's an answer to, but I do think, you know, farmers care about their livestock. They want their animals to be healthy and happy within reason. Um, but they do recognize that, you know, the point of having a calf every year on the ground is to put beef in somebody's freezer. And I think, again, it always goes back to that. How do we feed society when 2% of our American population is farming? And I, I look at the aspect too, and of when I do these cases, right? Understanding that, right? Understanding that, mm-hmm. like you said, ant, dogs, cats, companions still serve a purpose. I mean, now if someone's a breeder, that may be a, a little bit of a different thing because now that animal is you sure. know, providing resources financially. And that's the same thing when we look at our livestock in that aspect is, you know, this is not only an animal that they care about, but it's also an animal that provides them an opportunity to, you know, make ends meet. And so not saying that we should definitely like do things differently as far as the investigation goes, but maybe the conversations and things like that, having empathy in that situation. Um, we know livestock animals do get neglected and abused just like our other animals. And those cases should be investigated, but the cases involving, you know, hundreds of thousands worth of animals, hundreds of thousand dollars worth, worth of, I can't mm-hmm. talk today, worth of animals can really impact somebody long-term, like for their entire life. Like they may not be able yeah. to continue to operate in a way that they were business-wise, right? We have to sure. change everything. So I just think it's important to know that uh, you talked about body condition scoring systems, and, and we use those. We we use uh, the Henneke for horses. What is used for cattle? I don't know that they've got an official title for them, okay. but there are fairly standardized systems. So there's a specific system for beef cattle and then a different system for dairy cattle because those two types of they're cattle different. Yeah, they have different, are very different yeah. in how they're built. Back to um, Henneke really quick. Uh, have you ever heard this? Now, I've heard this in some circles in animal control that he didn't create that for what we used it for, right? Like he created it for breeding purposes and it sounds like he wasn't too thrilled that it was then being used in court as something to prove negligence. Do you have any insight on that? I haven't really heard that point. Um, You know, I, I really haven't. And what I would also say is that we see some variation too, because if you go to like Europe, they use a completely different scoring system. So they use a one to five instead of Henneke, which is one to nine. So um, there are some differences there. And I think the biggest thing of importance is that while it's not necessarily what he had intended for it to become, I do think it's become very valuable in providing you know, some form of standardized markers of what we're looking for, because you can also make arguments either direction, right? I I make the case a lot is that we've got this kind of ideal body condition score. But if I see a body condition score horse of a four who's a racing thoroughbred, I'm really not worried. In the same way, if I see like a leading quarter horse that's a six, that's that's fine. (laughs) There's some variation. And I think that's, you know, the beauty of the system and the downfall of the system is that there is some some flexibility to it. Um, But I'm not really familiar with him, um, you know, not appreciating it being used the way it is. But Now, that was was just from circles of animal control. So who knows how true that was? I I was curious. And that's why I was reaching out if, if you've ever heard that. So. 
Yeah, maybe. I haven't. And, and I would also say we're still working on things like now we're doing like top line scores and crusty neck scores. So we're, we're constantly trying to find ways that we can scientifically validate some of this type of scoring systems to make it more universal. What is the most common uh, com- like reason people call your office? Like, what are they reaching out to your department for? <laughs> That's such a hard question. I would say a lot of a lot of my calls are actually like homeowners that you know have an issue with a plant of some sort. I would say that's probably like 60%. Okay. Um, I actually don't get as many like proactive livestock calls as I probably would like to get. Um, But I'm also in a very small community. We only have about 7,000 people in my county. Okay. Um, So I just, I don't tend to get as much of those as I would like. From a level of like just negligence, not not physical like abuse that somebody is like intending 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 to cause harm to livestock. What do you think is the like the most common type of negligence uh, for horses, cattle, pigs, etc.? Is it it's going to range or? Um. So one that really jumps out is with small ruminants. So sheep and goats have really bad parasite problems. Um. And what we have right now is a situation where we are getting extensive resistance to our anthelmintic drugs, and we are not having any new drugs basically come about. So I have a lot of situations where people get sheep and goats because they're cute and they're easy and they're small, but then they don't have any understanding of the parasite concerns and how to manage that. Um, And so from like a welfare standpoint, I think it's just, I hate to say ignorance, but, but I think it's just, they don't know. And unless they meet somebody who shares with them, like, Hey, this is something you really need to be aware of and concerned about. They just don't know until it's too late. And unfortunately I have had clients call me, you know, with emergency situations with goats that we lost because they were not on an appropriate parasite management program and they just didn't know any better. And so that's always heartbreaking on my front. So that's, that's a clear one right off the bat. The other species, it's a little bit harder. I would say a lot of what I see as a county agent is people um, thinking that they can have more animals on not enough space. So like folks that have, you know, five cows on two acres and don't realize that you just don't have the forage quantity to feed those animals. And if you're not going to have the forage, then you need to be feeding hay and you need to be doing some other things. And that happens with horses too all the time. Just the the gap between information on space versus nutritional needs. And if you don't have the space, what you have to do to make up that difference. Okay. It's not cheap. It's not cheap having livestock. It is not. Are you, do you own any yourself? I do. So I um, am very proud of the fact I have two animals under my care. I have a dog. So I do have a dog at home. And then I do have a horse. And he is a a 19-year-old Arabian gelding, just kind of semi-retired. He gets to hang out and just be a horse most of the time. That's pretty cool. Now, I'm going to change gears here. And our listeners will probably be like, Daniel, there's no point (laughs) of this. Are do you, so does your office work with marijuana since it's legal in 
in your state now. Tomahawk Live Trap has been manufacturing humane animal capture and handling equipment since 1925. They work directly with animal control officers around the world to develop and improve their products so that they're as safe and efficient as possible. Save 10% on your next order by using discount code DCACREPORT. Visit them online at www.livetrap.com or call them at 1-800-272-8727. Um, so we do not. The closest we have gotten is back probably three years now, three, four years now, hemp became a really big thing. Sure. And so we had a lot of research and being done and a lot of effort of helping us be educated to help our public, right? Sure. Um, but really here we never got quite as big of a push to it. I know I had folks that would call and ask and would be interested in producing it but for us it's one of those things that it's we don't have enough evidence yet in Georgia of it being profitable enough to be worth the trouble especially on the hemp side because there's very strict regulations around your THC content and if mm. you test too high they burn everything so sure. it's just it's a very risky thing here um so we we had some we were taught some about the hemp side, but we have not heard anything on the actual marijuana side. The reason I really bring it up, though, is the impact that it may have on on animals, right, on livestock if they get into a field. Instinctually, are they even going to eat it? Like, are, that's the concern that I have and, and really why I brought it up. Like, is it a, to, a not whatever toxin to them, to the livestock if they do get into it? Have you heard of anything like that? I have not. I would be willing to bet there's probably some studies looking at that. Um, I, I would imagine they they may avoid it because most of the time, see, it depends because the argument I make is most of the time, and we get this like with toxic weeds and things too, is if your animals have enough to eat, right? If they have enough forage, they're not going to eat the toxic weeds or the marijuana or the whatever it is, right? Um, most of the time, they do have kind of this innate ability and sense to avoid things that are dangerous to them. Um, but if you have an animal that isn't getting that nutritional need met, that isn't getting the fiber that they need, they certainly will if they have to. So I think it kind of depends on the scenario. I would say if you turn a healthy animal out, I don't know that they would... You know, run over to the weed like, hey. Yeah, I don't think that's how that would work. But I could <laughs> okay, be cool. wrong. I could be wrong. No, you're probably right. I was just curious, like being in your office, you guys seem to have your hands in a lot of different things. And so from the aspect of like maybe sure. the regulation, no, but you might see it in some livestock. And that's a, a different ballpark in that in that regard. What uh tips or advice do you would you give to like animal law enforcement, animal control officers? that are doing this job, like it, working with these large thousand pound animals? So the biggest thing I would say is, you know, if you have an opportunity to get the hands-on knowledge, do it. And that can be as easy as contacting your local extension office and saying, you know, can you help me connect with a farmer that would be able to let me shadow them around their farm or something like that. Because a, a lot of the risk in terms of dealing with these animals is understanding behavior, understanding how they move, understanding how they react to things. Um, but if you don't have livestock background and you've not been on a farm, it's hard to know those things, right? So I would say from a handling standpoint, really nothing beats the hands-on portion. 
Um, there are some cool videos and things, right? You can find some information online that shows like, you know, how the flight zone works on cattle and understanding that principle can be really helpful. But truly, I would just say if you can connect with any local people who would let you come get a little bit of experience or watch them work their animals, I think that's really valuable. Um, And then again, kind of on the technical side, I think it's just understanding where your resources are. Um, You know, I tell folks in extension, I get questions, as I said, a lot of my questions are about plants. I have no plant background, not even a little. All of my background is livestock and horses. Hmm. And so it's not my area of expertise, but I know who I can call to get help with that. And I think that it's learning where your resources are and how to leverage them. Okay. Have you, does your office ever get involved with like rooster fighting in the state? Cause I'm sure it happens down there. Oh, so this is the funniest story to me. Um, I moved here in 2019 and within like three months, they busted the largest rooster fighting ring in the state in my county. Oh, wow. And I still can't wrap my brain around that. Um, and honestly, we were not really included on that at all. Um, okay. Now, I'm not sure if that's just because we had not had an agent. I had just started. So I'm not sure if we just didn't, they maybe weren't aware that we were around. Um, I did have a lady call me wanting to adopt a rooster from the rooster fighting ring. Um, and I had to direct her to our local Leo's. Um, but for us, that was also a state, uh, like Georgia department of investigation. So it didn't stay within the County. So I think that Got also it. plays a role in it. Got it. Well, that makes sense. I mean, those are big investigations and it's a lot of work that goes into it. So a lot Absolutely. of different pieces, a lot of different pieces, but I mean, there still could be some resources in your department. And I think that's good, whether it's just from identifying the types of birds, because there are so many different types of you know species when it comes to our animals. Absolutely. It's good to, good to know and have some experts in that yeah. realm. So, And I think the other thing too is um, like, depending on your state, there may be other things like we have a large animal response team. So since we have Georgia's the number one broiler state in the country. I'm sorry, so it's since the number one. What state? Broilers, so meat chickens. Oh, okay. Okay. Yep. I'm vegan, so, we yo, have, so I, don't, I don't know. You got to explain. The listeners no, know that. No, you're good. Broiler, <laughs> like, broiler is another word for meat chicken. Um, okay. And Georgia has the most meat chickens in the country. Okay. Um, and so for situations, you know, we've got a couple of major interstates, like most states do. And so, like, we've got a team that is trained that if something were to happen and we had a truck overturn or okay. we had, you know, some emergency happen and we needed to manage that situation, we do have a team of people who has been specifically trained for that. Um, so I think that that's kind of neat. And I, I don't think that's unique to Georgia. I think that probably is pretty common. Um, so understanding who those people are in case you need them in a crisis. Um, but they may also have some additional resources you know, unrelated to more of that disaster end of it, but more to the just navigating some of those animal cases. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, even in our emergencies that are, you know, not necessarily related to vehicle accidents. I mean, uh, you, you sometimes get like really bad weather down there. I don't know. Do you get, you don't get hurricanes? And the, uh, it depends on the hurricane. Okay. The, the we we can get some of that so like well especially south georgia and like the south coastal georgia they will occasionally get hit by some of that nasty weather yeah. um where where i am it's far less common we really I don't guess savannah could probably get a hurricane huh 
Yeah. Again, it just depends on their trajectory. And we actually get, like, we'll get tornadoes coming out of the Alabama side of the state. So, like, I would say the south end of Georgia has more weather concerns than the north end. But we we do have some potential for natural disasters, but it's fairly uncommon. Got it. So you can't pick horse. Horse is not an option here. If you could have any type of livestock, what would it be and why? So I'm actually in this position right now because we lost my horse's pasture mate a couple weeks ago. Uh, and he is the only horse on property now, which I don't think is humane. Um, so I am currently in the dilemma process of trying to decide if I'm going to get another animal or if I'm going to look at moving him. Get a donkey. I have thought about a donkey. My only concern with donkeys is that they tend to be very easy keepers. Like they're not really designed to graze the way that horses are. So okay. they have a lot of like metabolic issues. Um, and so I'm a little concerned about the management of a donkey, but I'm thinking about donkey. I also am thinking about like a zebu, which is a type of African cow. Yep, because looking that up. Little... Hold, please. No, <laughs> keeps going. I'm just going to look it up. Zebu. <laughs> Yeah, they're kind of neat. I think they're out of I think they're out of Africa. I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure they're um, one of the like either either Africa or Asia, but they're basically a smaller cow. So they're only like five to seven hundred pounds. And I like the idea of having a cow. I'm just not convinced I want to commit to another twelve hundred pound animal at this point in my life. I mean, I I guess you've got connections, so that's not the real question is not how you're actually pretty common here. Like not like real common, but they're not unusual. In what Georgia. is the thing on their back? So it's basically like a water hump. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Like a camel has a hump. They have a hump. Okay. Um, or if you look up like a Brahmin species, so Brahmin are a type of cattle that we see a lot like in Florida. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. I see it. Yep. So kind of similar. Um, <laughs> The Brahmin species, they're all, bless you, they're all very heat tolerant. That came so through? Oh, I got to edit that out. I thought I edited it. I thought I hit the mute button. Sorry. <laughs> You're fine. Um, but anyway, I'm looking at a Zivu, um, more because I don't want a fully grown, like, 1,200-pound cow. I don't think I would go for a sheep or goat, just because we also, we are in hot wire fencing, so I don't have fencing that would hold a sheep or a goat. So I'm thinking either a donkey or a cow. Can I make a recommendation? Yes. Uh, I would get, I mean, if like, if you had your choice, I would get, a, I would probably either get a zebra or a giraffe. I think that they would make a, a horse really happy. To be fair, you know how much I would love to have a giraffe. I went I would, to a horse farm last week in Texas because yeah. I was at a conference and they had a, like a match breeding pair of giraffes. And then they had one of the giraffe's babies. And I was just like, I sold. I, I want one. I also decided I want a taper, which is the little, I don't yeah. know. Almost, yeah, I want one of those. Um, yeah, I just want one of everything. Do you see why I only have two animals? Smart. I've reached my capacity. <laughs> I do. I have some goals of uh, opening like a retired animal sanctuary at some point in life. And so maybe I can get some of those things that, that we awesome. talked about. Because it's just like, you know. Like your horse, so that'd be a great place. If you didn't want to get a buddy for it, it's like I get your horse and then he gets to live or she gets to live with, you know, the hippopotamus that I might have gotten somehow illegally. But it's okay. I still think it's, you know, whatever. <laughs> it was awesome. The only reason I don't think I could do a giraffe is that we were talking about 
how much it costs to buy a giraffe. And they said to buy like a breeding age female right now is like $300,000. And that's not counting any of your, like your infrastructure and your permits and all the other things. Only like, three hundred thousand dollars. That's yeah. you know, someday when this doctorate bumps my <laughs> a lot. <laughs> well, we really appreciate you joining the show. I know there's a lot more we could probably talk about, and maybe we'll have you come back uh, when we have when we have a bishop here too, because I know she'd have a lot of questions, especially being up there in Missouri, where they have a lot of you know, obviously a lot of milking cows and Absolutely. livestock up there. So I think it'd be a good opportunity uh, to have you come on and you know we can just chat about more more stuff it seems like you really know you know know and and love the work that you do and that that makes it all the more more fun so absolutely yeah thank you do you have any questions for the show before we wrap it up i don't i just you know my plug to reach out to extension get familiar with us if anybody has specific questions for me again i'm more than happy to chat with folks and you know i i think we're all trying to work towards a a society that's well-fed with animals that are well-cared for. And, you know, I think we're all trying to do the same things. I would agree. Absolutely. And I'm all for, you know, the the proper care and, and treatment of animals. That's why we do what we do. So totally appreciate that. Please make sure to check out our website, keepithumane.com. Use discount code AC report for 10% off of your order. Also check out our socials and don't forget to like, share, and rate the podcast. And as always, even without Bishop, we like to say thanks for listening and keep it humane, Maine. Hey, make sure you check out our website, keepithumane.com. We have a upcoming virtual verbal de-escalation training, and it's only $25. So sign up now. Make sure you get in there. It's going to be on July 27th, and all the times are listed on the website. Go, Please go to www.keepithumane.com for more information. Hope to see you there. Thanks.